Okay, this time we're going to be talking about uh, Prince of the City, which is a 1981 movie directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, it's based on the true story of um, a corrupt police officer who went to the DA's office and began collaborating on bringing in corrupt cops and criminals. And it's the story of how that escalates to the point where it eventually has nothing left in his life professionally and personally. Shane, this is the first time you've seen this film. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, I've seen lots of other Lumet films, but yeah, this is the first time I've seen Prince in the City. It's kind of been on the list for years. Lumet films I've seen repeatedly include 12 Angry Men, Dog Day Afternoon, Network. Um, others I've seen once, Serpico, before the Devil Knows You're Dead, The Hill, The Murder on the Orient Express. I also have a list of Lumet films I haven't seen. Uh, the Verdict, The Pawnbroker, The Offence, The Anderson Tapes. Oh I haven't God. seen any of those, and this was on that list too. So right. You're going you know. home with The Verdict. Yeah. Right. yeah, it's supposed to be really good, right? It's really, really good. <laughs> it's the same collaborative writer, isn't it, Jay Preston Allen? Yes, and the same DOP, which is quite important. Oh, yeah, okay. Two films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's been on the list for years. I just never got around to it. So yeah, finally sat down for three hours and, <laughs> and watched it. Yeah, I came across it. I don't know if I would have come across it for a good few years if it was sort of in that period when I was about 20 when you start getting into movies. I remember I was at a friend's house late at night um, and it came on TV. It must have been like a Channel 4 showing or something. Oh, yeah, okay. And I was kind of interested. It, it Obviously, because, you know... Like a lot of people my age, you get into movies and you sort of get into Scorsese and gritty New York type things. And it was definitely sort of gritty New York. Um, so I went home and recorded the rest of it and watched it and really liked it. And then must have, yeah, I got it on, got it on Clamshell X Rental VHS okay, okay. a few years later. Um, and then it was quite late to DVD. Big uh, box. Yeah, great big clunky box. Is it the same poster on the front? The... Uh, yes, the badge tucked into yeah into his his belt as he's facing the city. Yes, but it was um it was a UK VHS and it had really strange tagline on the back. It said like um, hero or copper's narc. And then yeah, it was quite late to DVD um, and it's never been released on Blu-ray. I think you can get it on iTunes and stuff, but not physically. So I've seen it quite a few times. Uh -huh. um, this is the first time in about five or six years, but maybe longer. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite f more familiar with it, I think. Oh, yeah. Fond of it as well, then? Yeah, I th less so with this viewing. I still like it a lot, but it's not it's not a perfect movie, and when we come to it, I can, I can kind of see why it didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what was your first impression? Because we haven't discussed this yet. No, at all. no. Uh, well, you know, I like the film. I like the themes. I like the look of it. For me, it's kind of slightly handicapped by a really theatrical, central performance from Tree Williams. I, yeah. I just I feel him acting. You, you can't know. you can't get away from it, can you? No, it's 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 a real shame as well. And I, I know from the little research I've done that he's really proud of it. Considers it his best film, which you know is probably fair. Uh, it's probably the best film that he's in. Um, although, isn't he in Once Upon a Time in yeah, America? Yeah, he's got well. about five screen minutes on that. Yeah. yeah, 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 and yeah, I just couldn't get past it. And I can see that he's he's doing his best, mm. but the the facade never drops fully, or he never sinks fully into the world. He and, doesn't. 
I mean, yeah, let's let's discuss this now. I was going to talk about it because we're going to talk about the cast in a bit. But yeah, he's it's because I think it's the elephant in the room, isn't it? Once it you really get past is. that, you can really sit back and enjoy the other details and nuance of the film. But like, he's he's you know he's kind of okay, but the film demands somebody that's really yeah. special. Somebody who's in ev- pretty much every scene for three hours. Yeah, yeah. You, you need to. And carrying the weight of like a ten-year journey from, you know, sort of cavalier cop to you know heartbroken soul <laughs> who's lost everything. You know, it's such a, a long arc. I thought I thought he did the heartbroken. The last sort of twenty minutes, half an hour, he was he was okay. Once oh, I don't know because he was doing so little, he was just staring blankly it, he's and propped up by the, the ensemble. You know, the rest of the, you have that brilliant scene at the end. Um, where you have all the councillors sitting around, like debating, you know, modern morality and mm. you know the the future of a city. You know, it's really powerful stuff. And then they just cut back to him, and he doesn't really have to do anything because their dialogue is it's carrying him through it. Powering he's, his he's, character. Yeah, that's yeah. it. They're the wave, and he's just the the surfer. Yeah. No, that's not. That's a terrible. No, terrible, no, it's, 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 it is. It, it's it's one of those movies where, and I don't think it was the intention this time, but I always, whenever I see something like this, I always think of The Firm with Tom Cruise. Oh, yeah, okay. Because, you know, he wasn't the actor then that he is now. Hmm. You know, you, you, you had to have him in the central role, and he's not really that good. Hmm. But then you prop him up with an amazing supporting cast. So there's always Pac-Man. someone. Yeah, Pac-Man again. <laughs> Um, and there's always someone or something to watch and to power the scenes through when you've got kind of like a bit of an empty shell in the centre. Yeah, yeah. But this isn't even that. Watching it this time, my instinct was that this guy is from theatre. Mm. And I know Sidney Lumet kind of lived and worked in New York and was very aware of what was going on in theatre. And Sure. Um, and but, I mean, it wasn't like he was from, like, the Brechtian school of no, no, he was, he, he was, was doing Greece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was doing Greece. It's not like he was, uh, you know, yeah. Well, yeah, he must have had some like agent heat behind him because he got that. He had a, a, a role in 1941 for Spielberg. Yeah. So off the back of that, he was probably, you know. Well, he had hair, didn't he? That was his big film breakthrough with Milos Forman. You know, uh, my lasting memory of Treat Williams is seeing a trailer on loads of videos for and there was a trailer for a film called deep rising yeah which was him on like a jet ski bursting out of like a, a container ship i think with like a giant octopus or something i can't even remember mm. what it was but it was just deep rising with treat williams and i was just like who the hell is that <laughs> i remember him being in um things to do in denver when you were dead oh yeah okay in the mid to late 90s that was a sort of a cleverer post tarantino film yeah that Brief. was good actually yeah that was Andy Garcia, wasn't it? Yeah, and Christopher Lloyd and all sorts. Yeah, yeah. So, aside from Treat Williams, mm. how did you find it? Well, I, I liked everything that it was kind of talking about. I think when you look at New York in the 1970s, it's such a broken, corrupt city. You know, it had been kind of abandoned by the uh, federal government. You know, it was there on its own. And, you know, it's that... I think, like you were saying, when you're watching movies in the 80s as a teenager and then you start digging a bit deeper, it's kind of the truth of the behind the lie of like the, the 80s polish. You know, this is the reality. This is kind of dirty city that you're yeah. you know, hanging on by your fingernails, surviving, and it's just you know, the filth and the squalor and the corruption, which is, you know, top to bottom. It's rife. Mm. And I, think, I think they definitely capture that. 
this is probably one of the last films that that I can think of this and there's the Wolfen as well that uses those New York locations before I guess they're redeveloped yeah, completely. Yeah. I think this this must have been shot in about 1980. Um, I think it was just like you know your last stab at getting those sort of locations. Yeah, burned, yeah. burned out tenement buildings and you know. Yeah, you can imagine lots. they're sort of shooting the same time as the Warriors. You know, completely yeah. you know different tone, but you know the Warriors manages to shoot the same city and make it seem like this, you know, unbelievably dystopian shithole it's a weird one it is it's a 70s movie but made in the very early 80s and i think that's part of the reason that it it i think times were just changing in at the beginning of the 80s you still get a handful of sort of gritty movies but they're dying out yeah yeah the blockbusters are taking hold aren't they yeah cutter's way is another one that's definitely a 70s movie but came out in 80 or yeah, 81 yeah. and died a death because nobody was just wasn't the audience for them anymore. It feels like a TV movie a lot of the time. Oh, yeah, okay. Like a like a high quality TV movie, mm -hmm. um, and I felt that it should have been a mini series. Oh right, okay. Like the tone of the music, it's got quite stripped down music. It's kind of saxophone and Fender Rhodes electric piano type okay. thing. So it does feel like sort of cop TV mm -hmm. rather than you know big screen cops. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that it's almost three hours. Um, feels like it it you know it should be a four part tv series mm -hmm. and it, i feel it's missing something at, at the beginning because the film's very much about this kind of you know special elite band of cops who've kind of given free reign um, and they make good busts and everything and they're quite working class yeah, yeah that's have, it. it's know, the same team that brought down the french connection isn't yeah it? and and they they kind of had their sort of working class bonding um, and then when Danny Ciello, the lead character, goes and starts investigating corruption, um, you move into the higher echelons of kind of like Ivy League mm -mm. Uh, lawyers and DAs and that sort of thing. Um, and it gets chillier and chillier and colder and colder. And um, there's a contrast between the two. But I think the first part of the movie should have been longer. I feel that you need more than 20, 25 minutes to get to know this band of characters. Yeah, you have to believe the Bond, don't you? I saw an interview with Robert Daly, who wrote the book. That it's based on? Yeah, so the, the real-life character is Robert Lucci, and he was a, a cop um, who turned on his partners in the end after a long corruption investigation. And then he, he said when it was kind of done, he didn't know what to do, so he wanted to write a book about the experience and trying to just get his side down on paper um, and went to see a literary agent who just said look you've never written a book before find yourself a writer and so he went to see Robert Daly um, and he pitched it to Daly as the story of a, a group of men a group of brothers who are forced to betray each other like it's a kind yeah. of Shakespearean tragedy almost yeah but the, the, the kind of brotherhood and the, the kinship and everything is sort of hinted at in a few scenes early on. Yeah, it's just not convincing enough, is it's it? It's not, no. And it's kind of... It, it returns to it later in the film, particularly towards the end, because, you know, by the time he's been ground down and is forced to, to inform on his... Because it should be pointed out, they are all slightly corrupt. His, yeah, contemporaries, you know, yeah. yeah. But, you know, there's I think there's a line where he's, he says in the... The documentary there's something about um cello's original deal was to expose corruption in the criminal justice system 
in the wider criminal justice system, the bail bondsmen, the judges, you know, they, he said they were much more corrupt than any cop that he knew. And the defence mm. lawyers as well. But then towards, you know, towards the end, as it turns out, in order to, in order for all those cases to be airtight, he can't perjure himself about the things that he and his partners have done in the past. Yeah, yeah. So he has to, well, he doesn't have to, he could always go to jail and destroy all the years of work. That's it. But he eventually has to turn on his partners and inform on them and everything that they've done together. But that's, you know, that makes sense and it's understandable, but the, all the guilt, and this is a film that is entirely about guilt, mm. is predicated on that, on that bond between them. Yeah. And we don't have enough of that, which, which is why I feel it would be better as a four-part miniseries, yeah, yeah. you know, like an hour of that. Do you think maybe that's, uh, you know, a modern viewpoint. audience's viewpoint? You know, the, f the film is pretty, uh, you know, it's nearly 40 years old mm. and it's... I think considered as the precursor to all the modern cop shows that came afterwards. Yeah. The sort of more procedural uh, films about well, TV shows about camaraderie, and you know, you can see this uh, direct line between this and The Wire. Mm. You know, and The Wire just slowing it right down to, you know, the tiny moments shared between men who spend twelve to fifteen hours a day together. You know, just two of them or three or four of them at most. Yeah. No, that's probably yeah, that's probably unfair of me. It is interesting though. Apparently, um, after it didn't do too well in distribution, it was sold to TV immediately. Oh yeah. And there was a longer TV version. Oh really? Which was 196 minutes, was shown over two nights. Oh right, okay. Well, I didn't um, know that. Which I've never seen. Yeah right. But is that an Alan Smithy car, <laughs> or is it? No, I don't think so. I think it. Would pro I think Lumet probably had to pare this right down to the bone and would have been mm -hmm. happy to put stuff back in. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen that version, but apparently it doesn't add anything to the front. It's just more about the bail bondsman and some oh, yeah, okay. more detail on the cases later on. Uh -huh. What about the development of the film? Do you know how it came to be? I only know from watching um, the De Palma documentary. Um, a good documentary, that's it's it. really good. I'm not a huge De Palma fan, but he was massively entertaining. Yeah, yeah. He comes across really well. Yeah, that's it. And you, he feels the. There's no arrogance about his failures, you know. No. It's not like he's justifying them. He's just like, yeah, I was got really wrong. surprised because he has well, he had such a reputation as being kind of a cold fish on set, mm -hmm. and, you know, really cold, unpleasant director. Yeah, but he just comes across as a really personable old guy. Yeah, that's it, and just kind of going to to work to do the job. Mm. Mm -hmm. Apparently, um, yeah, De Palma was developing this project for years, and then he was kind of taken away, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I think it was, uh, De Palma was developing it with David Rabe, who, um, wrote, uh, State of Grace, Casualties of War and Hurly Burly, and they were developing it with De Niro, and it was kind of in gestation for a while, and then at the same time, I think Lumet was developing Scarface, mm. um, with, and I think he, did he get Oliver Stone on board Scarface? Yeah, I think, I think so, think. yeah. Yeah, and then uh, they brought Lume into Prince of the City after De Palma left. And, well, I think he'd... Um, all right, let me let me backtrack on this, because I, I did check this out, actually. So, J. Preston Allen, uh, who wrote the screenplay for Prince in the City with Sidney Lume, uh, she also wrote Marnie, The Prime of Jean Miss Brody, mm. Funny Lady and Cabaret. And she'd read the book and took it to Lume and said, we should do this. Um, but the rights were still tied up with De Palma, and then when he departed, so 
<laughs> so Lumiere went off to do Scarface. And then when De Palma departed Prince of the City, Lumiere moved in and De Palma took Scarface. God. <laughs> I'm sure there's a simpler way of saying all that. Well, they kind of got the material that was best suited to them, didn't they? Yeah, in I, the end. I can't imagine De Palma having, having much patience for all of the kind of convoluted legal rigmarole and the slow procedural yeah, yeah. pace of, of you know what happens in Prince of the City. Yeah, um, definitely. I can imagine it'd be a lot more set-piece driven and there'd be a lot more violent confrontations. <laughs> a lot more fighting. <laughs> so Prince of the City um, has themes. It has themes in big capital letters. Um, it's very much a, th a thematically driven film rather than an action-oriented film. And I think the main theme in the film is just guilt. In, it's just guilt, 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 guilt from start to finish. Yeah, I mean, it's telling the opening scene is the lead character just laying in bed having night frights about people knocking at his door. You know, this idea that at some point he's going to have to, you know, pay the price of his moral choices. You know, I think that the kind of backdrop is it's 1970s New York after a long period of deindustrialization. It suffered economic crisis and rising crime rates. And I think, you know, the corruption was rife. Yeah. It's not yeah. specific about when it's set, but I think it's about 75, 76. Yeah, they that's do, it. They it's... do go to see Ship of Ship of Fools, and they've got a poster for all the president's men in oh, the yeah, lobby okay. as well. So yeah, right, right. I think that's kind of the period. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there's that really weird scene where they're queuing to go in the cinema. Mm. And he's, it's a bit like that. What's that Woody Allen film where he's... Annie yeah. Hall. Yeah, it, was, <laughs> it has that sort of feel to it, because like Treat Williams' performance is so light, isn't it? Yeah. You know, considering everything that he's going through. It starts. They, you get a very sort of brief opening scene where where the cops kind of do a big bust, which is great for them professionally and also personally because they skim off several thousand dollars from the bust. Yeah, yeah. There's a nice quote from uh, Robert Lucci where he's talking about uh, drug dealers and he he just says, uh, you know, if if I meet a drug dealer, he doesn't have any civil rights as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> That's his. Their, that was their kind of ethos as cops. Yeah. It sketches in that, and then you know, which is quite exhilarating and quite a high for them. Yeah. So what they would do is take all of the drug dealers' money, with uh, except for maybe like ten grand, and use that to buy them flights out of yeah America. Out of the so it was like immediate extradition. Yeah, they explain it later in the film. They don't like to leave them any bail money at all. Yeah, Because exactly. then they could just buy their way out of the case, That's and that'd be it. So they just give them a, enough money left over for a, a plane ticket and mm. keep the rest. So there's that kind of exhilarating high, um, and then there's another scene straight after where you kind of see the dirtier, more unpleasant side of what they have to do. Yeah, it's, he's woken it's a up a brilliant at, sequence. It's a horrible sequence. He's woken up at three in the morning from his bed at home, has to go out and score it's, uh, uh, supply. Yeah. It's his uh, CI, isn't it? His confidential informant who's basically run out of drugs yeah. and need, needs him to score for him. Yeah, so he has to score drugs, which means chasing around New York at three, four in the well, morning. Well, first of all, he goes to the police station to score drugs. <laughs> he picks up the drug, the drug addict, drives him to the police station, goes to see another cop who's got a load of drugs in his locker, scores from him, gives it to the junkie, but it's bad shit. So the junk, junk, junkie can't take it, so he can't go back to the police station again. So then they have to go down and rob another junkie. Another junkie who, you know, Jello has to beat up in order to rob, and it turns out it's somebody else that he knows. Who's yeah, yeah. I terribly mean, upset. It's one of those sequences as well. I think, like a modern filmmaker might cut it 
as soon as the point is made. Mm. But what Lumet does is he stays with Cello and this junkie as the junkie is then reacting to the beating, you know, like he's been punched in the guts, he ends up throwing up, you yeah. know, just all over Broken himself. Nose, yeah. And Cello's like wiping the sick from his from his mouth. It's the, probably one of the most powerful scenes in the in the film. It's yeah. really arresting. And then it doesn't even end there. So he, he goes back home. Takes with the, junkie. the junkie home. He's like, okay, I'll take you. Sends his CI junkie on his way with his stolen smack, and then takes the other junkie home with half the stash, so that he doesn't leave him completely bare. And then that junkie goes home and beats up his girlfriend, who takes all of the yeah the, the, the junk. She and, goes into the bathroom, takes yeah. all the junk, and leaves him nothing. Well, she says that she's taken it, but and then she dropped half of it down the toilet, which is pretty standard, like. <laughs> Junkie, junkie lie, junkie lie yeah. yeah. And then Cello just stands there as he beats up his uh, his girlfriend. Played by a very young Cynthia Nixon. That's right, yeah. It's always startling to see her. Yeah, yeah so you, and it's pretty much off the back of this scene that, that Cello kind of realises he, he, he can't live with this kind of guilt. Well, he's a drug dealer himself, drug essentially, dealer. isn't he? With and the badge. Yeah, there's a scene at home with his family that nails it where he's his younger brother who's having a, a tougher time than him kind of confronts him about he's supposed to be a drug addict too isn't he the yeah I think so it's a terrible performance that brother yeah he's, he's it's, really awful it's a rough scene as well you can see there's a there's a massive dent in the wall from an earlier take yeah that's right yeah. <laughs> so they're pushing each other around but on the basis of these sort of sketched in short scenes early on you, you can see that, that Cielo is guilty about every aspect of his life yeah well yeah it's there in the subconscious isn't it I think and what the film does is put some characters in the way that make him conscious of, that of his choices. culpability. Yeah. And then he's invited to um, see the new DA, the district DA. Yeah, I think so. Um, who's beginning an investigation into police corruption. And initially he's quite bullish and resentful. Yeah. And again, in a, a very rough bit of performance, he, he kind of does the swaggering macho bravado thing. Mm to a real extreme but then decides that he wants to cleanse himself of this guilt by starting to investigate people more corrupt than him yeah yeah that's the feeling i get yeah it's uh, still a crusade then isn't it yeah the real uh cello he uh he said that his kind of motivation for switching was simply being at home with his father and his father made a, a comment on a diamond ring that he was wearing right and it's like his uh, his dad was like, "What's what's this ring you're wearing?" And he said, "Oh, dad, sometimes I have to go undercover, so I kind of I need the jewelry." And his dad was like, "No, no, I don't, I don't think that's right." And there was something about his father mm. seeing through the lie was enough of a prompt. And that's in the film as well. It comes at the end of that confrontation. Scene. Yeah, yeah. But the guy playing dad is is also <laughs> really flat, isn't he? Mm. And then it kind of moves into this second section of the film where he starts working with you know prosecutors and DAs um, and then kind of reveals another another theme of the film which is class mm. which is a massive class divide within the police within the government and yeah, law sure. enforcement um, and rather than try and quote it there is this this amazing stand-up speech which lays out the themes the class themes of the film um, just lays them out for you. So, so here it is. That's a pretty yeah. good scene. That's a good scene. <laughs> yeah, really I thought good. rather than try and, um, you know, read it from my notes, it's best just. Yeah, I mean, it. the film has lots of those moments. You know, it's worth watching just for that kind of quality. I, 
uh, read an interview with Lumet and he was saying, you know, there's something about Jewish filmmakers where they just kind of talk about everything that everyone else kind of tries to put a lid on. And, you know, I think it's one of those scenes where just to lay it all out, you know, that they often say, show, don't tell, show, don't tell. But mm. I think sometimes just like, just say it, just yeah. say it. And there, the sequence at the end, uh, you know, there's you know, half a dozen of those really powerful moments that are all just done in dialogue and even performance you know to be fair tree williams he starts that scene really kind of arrogant chest puffed up and ends you know head in the hands collapsed on the sofa yeah raw voice and yeah it's just like again going back to tree williams it's just that thing where like the scene is done and then they're fading out and you just hear him go you just don't understand like really <laughs> bad like theatrical kind of underscoring of something that had been done like perfectly it's like he just had to improvise one shit line tagged on the end i've got to say the sequences where he's undercover wearing a wire looking at the like the bail bondsman and the other sort of guys that are in that gray area of legality there's some pretty exciting stuff in there you know yeah. when to wear a wire when and he has a good intuition of when he's going to be safe to record people and when he isn't. Yeah, unless we make you know, unless lest we make this film seem like it's you know, a, a dry theoretical exercise, the whole middle section where he's investigating yeah, you know, the bail bondsman and, and other corrupt you know, law enforcers and stuff is very exciting. Yeah, yeah, and very edgy. You know the the fact that they're shooting in the streets and uh, Lumet. I think it was there's a hundred and thirty speaking roles and he mm. cut cast. 50 non-actors in those roles just to bring the authenticity and the actors didn't really know who was who and mm. I think it, you know when you're in buried in that world in the middle section it definitely feels very real and, and I think it's you know it's supposed to feel exciting because this is the point where you know Cello says that he wants to get back to where he felt felt good about what he was doing yeah, like it. when he was when he was a young cop mm. When he felt he was making the difference, and it is, you know, it's an exhilarating. Yeah, that's, yeah, fast I'm sure that, that there's no police officers that join the force to be drug dealers and to yeah. skim money. You know, I think that anybody that goes into that profession, I think there's there, there's a kind of nobility to it, at least mm. from the outset. And then I think it's that reality of how broken the infrastructures are in these kind of establishments. Mm. And it does it does actually say that later on. I think it's one of the um, one of the higher up DAs kind of says, you know, these guys are cops. Of course, of course, they're going to inform. They're guilty. They feel guilty about what they're doing because they're cops. You know, they're not they're not becoming career criminals. They yeah, still they're feel all Italian like, Catholics as well. Yeah, so they like... still feel they should do the right thing, even if they're not. Mm. Aside from guilt, the main theme for me was um, obviously it develops more and more as the film develops. It's about the class divide in in law enforcement. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's made very very clear. Um, early on because you've established these kind of working class kind of buddy cop you know, yeah, the yeah. SIU team are all kind of very salt of the earth very mm -hmm. down to earth and then as soon as you move into even in the first meetings with the DA it's all in kind of up, uptown apartments be yeah, yeah. beautifully decorated uptown apartments mm -hmm. and, and offices and stuff and you can see um, one of the big arguments of the film is like you know the, the, the cops who are on the ground versus the guys kind of basically in ivory towers yeah, yeah, who, are, yeah. who are making and enforcing the laws without any real understanding of the compromises that you have to make. I mean, Cielo has a lot of speeches about, you know, what, what he and his buddies have to do. And then towards the end of the film, there's quite a lot of good um, kind of crystallized arguments about, about the view from a view from, from on high. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so I think it's 
James Tolkien's character um, makes this speech about this very impassioned, sort of teary-eyed speech about what the law means to him. He says, you know, my father was a lawyer and my grandfather before that, and you know, the law means absolutely everything to me. Um, and if one part of the law is broken, then the whole thing just can't yeah, yeah. work. And that's a very rousing speech, but at the same time, when you think about it, well, it's too black and white. It's, it's too black and white. It doesn't work. Like, and obviously, it does work because you know these guys are arresting people and putting them in jail and actually stopping crime in a lot of ways. And one of the SIU has that has that fantastic yeah, speech. Yes. I can't remember the character's name. The guy with the long face and the mustache, yeah. who just casually confesses everything he's done, but with mm -hmm. the justification that you know you guys make it impossible for us to do it day to day. So yeah, we are it. still that doing this. Balance of this. justice and bureaucracy, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and that's one of the key themes for me that that comes across in the film is that is that the, the clash between sort of street level cops. And those people who think it's just kind of like a theoretical system that must be kept, these sort of puritanical... Yeah, yeah, that's it. And there's something telling, I think, in those, you know, the couple of guys that really support Cello and put him into this position and, you know, keep reinforcing how much they're there for him. And then they get a promotion and suddenly yeah. it's just like, oh, sorry, Dan, <coughs> I'm leaving you. I'm, uh, I've got yeah, a promotion. I'm, I'm, I'm moving on. I've been with you for yeah. several years. And, and then, you know, tw 20 minutes later, the, the other guy does the same thing. I've been given this great opportunity. So you carry on with the crusade. We'll get you somebody else into a, mm. a support worker to kind of get you through the next stage. And, you know, you just feel him being like abandoned yeah. after putting himself in such a precarious position, such a dangerous position yeah. to then be abandoned by the very people that convinced him to do it. Well they're not they're not really considering him I don't I think he's just an asset really. Well they've made a career off him. You yeah. know, once he's kind of in play and they start getting the, the busts and, you know, the the numbers then yeah. it means they've proved their theory and they can be promoted up or move across to somewhere else. But to the government at large as well, he simply becomes an asset that has to be, you know, shuffled around yeah, and, yeah. and, and leaned on by necessary. Yeah. <laughs> He's really good in it. I always think of him as like a really warm, cheery, <laughs> lovely guy, and he's such a dick in he's this, a, isn't he? He's, he's a sociopath in this, yeah, isn't he? Yeah. He's got no no warmth whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, he's absolutely driven just to for the goals. I think one of the one of the key attractions for this, and it's definitely the thing I'd recommend it most to people on the basis of, is the supporting cast. Yeah, because it's absolutely phenomenal. Oh yeah, um, you absolutely sink into that world, don't you? There. Yeah. It's it's apart from Treat Williams, it's all like really credible and yeah. Treat Williams, you just kind of have to go with um, and accept that you've probably seen worse performances and mm. stuck with the film. But everyone around is it's is a whole amazing. like sub conversation, isn't it? Yeah, bad performances in good films. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you've got just my list is you've got Lindsay Krauss, who was later in um, the verdict for Lumet. She was a um, very versatile sort of stage actor um, and future Mrs. David Mamet. Oh, really? She was his first wife. Oh, right, okay. They worked together, possibly on stage, but they did House of Games, his first feature, uh -huh, okay. together. Um, you've got baby Cynthia Nixon. Yeah, yeah. He must have been about 18 at the time and looks all of 15. You've got James Tolkien, um, who everyone will know as the principal from Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you have Lance Henriksen. Yeah, it's nice to see a little Lance Henriksen cameo, just uh, when he still has a bit of hair. Yeah. Pre-Terminator. There's 
there's an alternative world where Lance Henriksen hadn't done the Terminator and Aliens, where he's still doing great character parts in really good movies. Because mm-hmm. I think, do you know anything about his background? No, I don't, um, I don't know anything about him apart from uh, the I, obvious. I, I need to know more, but apparently he um, he had a proper life first. Um, he joined the Merchant Navy oh, okay. um, and was doing that for years. Uh, didn't learn to read and write until he was 30. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then started, I guess, doing acting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lumet certainly took a liking to him. He's in Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, yeah, okay. um, and he's in this. Uh, he's got a pretty good supporting role in Close Encounters mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, with Bob Balaban. Again, yeah, Bob he's Balaban. in this. <laughs> he's amazing. Um, and yeah, and he's got a really good supporting role in The Omen 2. Oh, okay. As one of um, Damien's sort of guardians and mentors at a military academy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he's in this, and I think this is the best that I've seen him in those little roles. Yeah, yeah. He's he's terrific and steely and charismatic and mm-hmm. just kind of commands every scene that he's in. Yeah, he's really good. Bob Balaban again. He's mm-hmm. usually friendly and approachable and chirpy. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. You hate him by the end of this. Don't yeah, you? such a dick. Oh, his first scenes, he's kind of he's fascinating because he's so. Not antisocial, but just asocial. He yeah, cares yeah. nothing about forming bonds with people. He just kind of yeah, pursues his agenda through. That's it. That's yeah. it exactly. Glass of champagne in one hand. Yeah. <laughs> and there's another guy in it. Towards the end, when his two first contacts have moved on, there's a guy who tries to befriend him, who has very sort of late seventies, early eighties, big hair, quite an interesting face. I think I've seen him somewhere before, and you get the feeling that you've seen him in about a dozen movies. Uh, he tries to befriend Cielo, but Cielo is so frozen up by the yeah, right, right. by the ordeal he's been through that he kind of rebuffs him. But he still kind of sticks with him and is quite loyal to him. Who is he? I can't, I can't remember him in the film. But. Steve Inwood. Um, he's kind of hanging around in the background after the polygraph test, and then they share a flight back. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's saying, you know, he's trying to talk to him about his ordeal. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Cielo says, what, you, you want to be my friend? And then just turns away. Uh, and you, you realise that this guy is perhaps the only person in the whole apparatus who understands what it's what it's doing to this guy personally. Mm-hmm. But he's just a really interesting looking actor and he does really well in it. But I looked him up thinking that I'd see him in about ten movies I've seen, but I've only ever seen him in two things. Mm-hmm. One of which was the, the movie of fame, okay. which I can't remember him in. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a feeling he might be the horrible guy who lures Coco off the street to do nude photos <laughs> but and then he's in this movie which I saw when I was 13 late at night at my grandmother's house I was I thought it was so fascinating um, and so seedy it's like a New York revenge thriller with oh, yeah, James okay. Brolin looking for his kidnapped daughter oh, right, right. called Night of the Juggler and it was so seedy and it was all kind of like shot on Times Square New York mm-hmm. streets um, that I thought it was great at the time um, and I haven't seen it since. Uh-huh. It's probably terrible. Yeah, right, right. But he's in that. Um, but yeah, he's he's really good. Mm-hmm. And I just think he should have been in more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What happened to him? Do you know? I don't know. You kind of look at the IMDb and you see, you know, sort of spotty mm-hmm. um, credits and things that you've never seen in TV movies. But maybe he's another theatre actor. Yeah, right, right. He had a really good theatre career. Sorry, I've just talked for about an yeah. hour and a quarter. Well, um, the only thing I know about the cast is that apparently Bruce Willis is an extra in this film. Really? Yeah. And um, Treat Williams got him uh, an agent or an introduction to an agent or something. And that's, where, that's crazy. That's where that starts, <laughs> yeah.
So I think one of the kind of main pleasures of watching Prince in the City as a fan of cinema is, is watching Lumet, you know, who's probably a master of his craft at this point, just kind of doing the work. I saw uh, Lumet interviewed in a documentary and he talks about Prince of the City and it being his uh, least judgmental work. Um, well, it's kind of a conversation piece with Serpico, which is, you know, we haven't really mentioned it. It's the earlier film he made about police corruption. Yeah, sure. But one of the criticisms of Serpico when the film came out, um, more the film than the book or the real-life story, mm. is that he's portrayed as an absolute saint. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's, he's one absolutely incorruptible man against the system. And that, yeah, yeah. For a lot of people, that didn't ring true. Mm. Um not necessarily in the case of Serpico's life, but in the case of a movie. He did get shot in the face by cops. Yeah, but but the fact that he's he's presented as you know Pauline Kale in her reviews you know said he, he's like a saintly Christ-like figure mm -hmm. in the whole film. Yeah, um, it's a wispy beard and everything. Yeah, but it's this kind of like you know telling a story of police corruption, telling it from the point of view of somebody who's absolutely incorruptible and is is astounded at the the level of corruption in front of him. Yeah, like, yeah. Well, you know, this time I think he, he wanted to tell it from the point of view of somebody who was corrupt mm. and not have those absolute moral certainties in there. Yeah, yeah. So what was it Lumet said about it? Well, he was talking about um, the techniques that he wanted to apply in realising the story on film. Uh, his simplest one was just to take out any film lenses that mimic the human eye. Uh, yeah. So anything in the sort of mid-range, 30, 40 mil, no, 30 mil, 20, 30 mil, I think. And so he just used wide angle and long lens stuff. So you do get these kind of really abrasive moments where you have this wide street scene with the cops running through and then you cut into like a quite a wide angle close-up and yeah. it's, it's really sort of in your face. You're kind of in, in, the, in the nose hairs, aren't you? Yeah, you remember that really well since you, yeah. you gave away your copy of... Um making movies by Sidney Lumet but I referred back to mine the other oh, day yeah, okay. it's almost word for word oh right yeah. well he says in the documentary so I guess he's kind of just walking around saying the same thing yeah all, all space was elongated or foreshortened depending on whether I use wide angle or long lenses yeah, nothing yeah. was to look normal or anything close to what the eye would see yeah exactly yeah. and then uh, he talks about structuring the film so it's three acts um, structuring the visual style so the first act is kind of wide, you see all the background details um, and the backgrounds are lit more brightly than the foreground so yeah. um, the characters are shadowy, blending in and you, you can kind of see the world that they inhabit and then he talks about the middle act evening everything out so it's kind of everybody's on the, on the same sort of level and then by the third act you stripped away all of the background detail, a lot of the rooms, like the courtroom in the opening sequence is rammed full of people, there's a hundred people in there, yeah. you know, the paint is full, it's coming off the ceiling and, you know, it's chaotic and then by the end when Cello's in the courtroom, yeah, it's, the it's empty. Blomberg yeah. trial and everything, it's, it's virtually empty. There's nobody there, it's wood panel and it's dark, no and all you can see is the characters' faces, they're the only things that are lit. So, I, you know, I really appreciated that detail in the, in the work I think you know to set up the authentic world to let the characters be introduced into that space and then to slowly migrate to a, a story where it's just all about mm. the impact of living in that city on the people that, that are there there's a funny little um, funny little section towards the end of the film um, which absolutely highlights that 
that you don't. It's, it's a very subtle change of shooting style throughout the film, mm -hmm. and you don't consciously notice it. Yeah, yeah. Until towards the end, where he goes to visit his old partner Gus Levy. Yeah. To warn him, and Levy's still working undercover in the garment district. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly you're in like a thriving, bustling environment, mm -hmm. um, as you know, like what you've seen earlier in the film, and the contrast between the two. And it's a scene where Levy tells him, look, you know, I'm working undercover, yeah, I've yeah. busted, you know, I've got wires on this many people, I've got this yeah, many it's busts. It's like, I'm and, still in yeah, the game, man, I'm still, still in the game. Yeah. And none of them are cops, and you yeah. realise, you know, the, the world that he's left behind. Yeah. And we get a reminder of that too, visually. Mm. And it, it makes you, you know, realise what you hadn't noticed about the, yeah, yeah. the, the sort of yeah, shooting really star. Lumet talks about um, the locations as well, because it feels like it's, a lot of it is sprawling across the city and they did shoot in the five boroughs and you know it was a, a kind of busy shoot but he also talks about um the alexander hamilton custom house which yeah. was uh, where they sh shot tons of the film it was basically like a, a a living studio they just kind of kept coming back there when it was raining they'd come back and find rooms and well they took over the whole building yeah that's and, it and realize that because so much of it well like 95 percent of the movie takes place in offices offices and and courtrooms, and courtrooms. And yeah exactly they could use all the different spaces in this kind of abandoned yeah, building yeah they used it for to double for miami and washington and all sorts <laughs> in there because it was um a detached building so it had views from four walls yeah yeah and then it had an inner courtyard it's on the as southern well. tip of manhattan isn't it yeah so that apparently um yeah that was an absolute godsend because yeah, they could yeah. just use that as their own studio and apparently <laughs> Lumet's always um, quite thrifty and um, always keeps an eye on the budget. Apparently, it saved them four days off the schedule. All oh, right, okay. Um, What's the film? Didn't he bring in? Um, I can't remember which film it is, but he brought it in a million under budget, and they said it screwed up the uh, <laughs> studio's accounts. <laughs> I remember an interview with him. It might have been on like moving pictures or something, oh, yeah, okay. about, or a documentary about him some time ago. But he did actually kind of. It was coming towards the end of his career, or. In, in the later stage of his career, but he kind of said, uh, what, what I actually do is add an extra three or four days onto the schedule oh, okay. and an extra, like, you know, quarter of a million onto the budget so that when it comes in under, yeah, I look right. like a hero. There's <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a funny um, tonal thing in the film, um, which I'm sure is uh, obviously because it, it, it spans about what must be five or six years, mm. and and obviously this is practically it's a result of it being shot over a short period of time but it's always winter mm -hmm. it's always late autumn or winter yeah yeah it's chilly it's a you know it's a chilly film from start to finish yeah i mean there's some summer stuff in there or it's supposed to be summer scenes isn't it where they're barbecuing but yeah it's no like two barbecue scenes yeah. but and it doesn't feel particularly warm yeah, even yeah. then which i'm sure is just kind of happy accident but it does it does give the film quite a cold cold atmosphere whereas Serpico is, feels like it's permanently a baking summer oh yeah okay and dog day afternoon definitely yeah, do, yeah you know but this is a wintry film um and it's a good double bill with the verdict which is also a winter film uh -huh, okay very very kind of same same dop as well he manages sort of to, to capture that sort of gray gray winteriness but the kind it's of polish isn't he yeah <laughs> so warmth, of, warmth of interiors yeah yeah Sidney Lumet is one of those names I think once he sort of comes up on your film radar like he's always there right yeah do you remember first your first Lumet do you remember your first Lumet um, Lumet Lumet uh, is it do you think it's pronounced Lumet or Lumet 
I think it's Lumet. Lumet, yeah. Um, I can't specifically. I think he's one of those ones who you'd seen more of his films without knowing what they were. And what so as you become aware of as you grow the, the role of the director, you suddenly realise two or three films that you've seen are all the same guy. Yeah, or you know, obviously, for me, the ones that you first become. I first became aware of as films that I was like consciously interested in seeing yeah. were um, Dog Day Afternoon Dog and Day Afternoon, Serpico, yeah. obviously. I think Serpico first because my parents were aware of it, so it would be on television mm-hmm. whenever it was on. But then, obviously, when you when you realise that you know that's the name, you realise how many of his other films you must have seen yeah, over yeah. the years. It would probably be have to be those two. How about you? Uh, yeah, I think probably probably Dog Day Afternoon was the first seeing it on like BBC Two or something. But then I remember seeing 12 Angry Men oh, maybe when I was like 20 or something and just feeling like that was the best film I'd ever seen. It was really clever, slow-moving film, just these guys in a room and having an, an entirely different perspective at the end of the film than what they had going in yeah. and just how clever that was. And I think he directed the stage play of that which is why and it's his debut and I think that's why he kind of moved into there and then I remember seeing Network and just feeling like it was such an outrageous brilliant satire yeah Yeah, Network's a discussion we'll have to have actually I'm not I'm not sold on Network I wonder if it I think it depends how old you were when you saw it if when you that moment when the uh veil is lifted and you kind of see the world as a less uh, colourful place than you do as a, as a teenager yeah I I find this, the satire of it which still stands to this day the satire of television mm. is has always been has always worked for me Yeah, it's the um, the middle aged lead <laughs> William um, Holden oh, yeah he's, he's and so it's, it's and once you, well, no, it's the middle-aged lead ha- having his midlife crisis on screen, hmm. and it makes the whole film seem like a bit of a midlife crisis. Yeah, except he's not even middle-aged, is he? He's kind of old. He's old, you know, old, he's sixty. But, but the whole thing is just kind of written from this kind of like get off my lawn hmm. kind of attitude, <laughs> and it's it's not even particularly even-handed as well because you know he gets to waltz into this affair with a younger woman, yeah, sure, and then waltz out of it. And then also he gets to kind of talk down to her about how worthless her generation is in comparison to his, and it all feels a little bit sour to me. Um, but don't you think by the end you sort of you're not sympathetic towards him either? You just well, it's not sympathetic it's towards like, him from the start. So yeah, but he sort of walks away, but you never think, you know, I want to want to be that guy, or I want to share his perspective, or he's right. You never think particularly that he's right. You just feel like, oh, he's, he's out of time. I should watch it again. I haven't watched it for a long time. Yeah, I, was, I just find it a, just a, a little overrated. Yeah, sure. Um, but that's more to do with the script than it is to do with Lumet. Mm-hmm. Any of his uh, more recent films? Uh, no. What about, oh my God, uh, what's the, the his last film, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead? I didn't like it very much. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought it was really good. I, I was, was really, really fresh. In, I was really invested in it, yeah, yeah. and I actually bought it. I think it was mm-hmm. like in the early days of Blu-ray. So you're just interested in buying new films mm. to watch them that way. I remember really liking it. It's kind of I haven't seen it since it came out, but 
kind of non-linear structure, the, the mad performances. Mm. I thought it felt really fresh. I think he took a big hit for me um, with the third in his is this unofficial police corruption trilogy, and the third one is Q and A with Nick Nolte oh, yeah, okay. and um, Amanda Sante, yeah, yeah. which automatically knocks knocks points off anything. Yeah. Um, Although, did you see him? Uh, I mean, talking about this period of time in that the film's taking place, did you see Armand Asante pop up in the second season of The Deuce as James Franco's dad? Yes, <laughs> yes, I did. Um, He's still kind of got that crazy swagger, but like in this old man's head and body. <laughs> yeah, I was quite, um, quite pleased and surprised that he let himself appear that old because he's always struck me as quite yeah. a vain man yeah yeah but to actually kind of let yourself be your age on yeah screen. i mean he's still talking about getting laid and you know <laughs> gotta come home after you got laid yeah but yeah lumet took a big knock for me after q a which i thought was great for its first two thirds and then mm-hmm. it did this it's you know it's the first two thirds set in new york and again it's about police corruption um mm. and it kind of does go into this kind of courts and legal system as well with judges and stuff like that but then the second half um relocates to miami is it or somewhere like that or or yeah relocates i I saw it once on video like at the time yeah sunny beachside location and just derails the film completely (laughs) it's like don't you realize what you're doing to the film Mm -hmm. by doing this um and as i say it has amanda sante in it and um so i've never i'd like to know if there's hidden gems later in his career yeah, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of work, isn't there? There's a lot of work, and I do really respect the fact that he just worked and treated it as work, where you do mm. the best job that you can. One of the one of the good things, or what, a, a good way to approach filmmaking at any level, is to treat it as a craft, mm-hmm. which can approach art or can become art. Yeah, yeah. But you have to work at it, and it has to be work. You can't just kind of be a dilettante and you know sure, sure. arrive and produce a masterpiece and then move on mm-hmm. you have to keep working and honing your craft and that is the definition of Sidney Lumet yeah, yeah he worked and worked and worked and all the films oh yeah apparently uh, Akira Kurosawa congratulated him on Prince of the City yeah. and the, the marriage between technique and story excellent yeah. <laughs> like that <laughs> that'll do thank you uh, yeah. Akira Kurosawa yeah you know not all of the films hold up and not all of them did at the time but there's such a body of work and there's still you know Films that I want to revisit, uh, I want to see Running on Empty again. I remember that being quite... What's that? Is that River Phoenix? Yeah, it's the um, 60s activists who've been on the run from the FBI for decades, raising their two kids. It's the effect on the kids that it has, Uh which I remember being quite moving, like 15, 20 years ago, Mm. and I'd quite like to see that again. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that sounds good. And I still haven't watched The Pawnbroker since... No, I I haven't watched... Oh, well, you've seen it. I've seen it, but so long ago that I can scarcely remember it. Uh, I've got it on disc downstairs. I keep meaning to watch it again. Yeah, there's that, there's a kind of whole sort of sub series of Lumet films that just when you read the synopsis they sound so dark. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to that one is it which is it's the offence, isn't it, with oh, Sean God, Connery? Yeah. Have you yeah. seen that? No, I've got I've got I've got a DVD that I bought of it like fifteen years ago. That yeah. I just every time I read the back, I'm like, oh, this sounds brilliant, but it sounds really like heavy going as well. It's very. It's had. It's been celebrated. Um, Quite, it's had like a, a rediscovery in the last like six or seven years, because there's a there's been a lot of focus since David Peace wrote the Red Riding books. Oh yeah, about a specific strain of seventies English bleakness and corruptness. Yeah, yeah. And for an American director, he manages to to capture that yeah, feeling yeah. of the time quite quite well. Yeah, I should uh, should dust it off. 
it's a very strange 70s English film. Um, it's got a great um, semi-electronic avant-garde soundtrack, mm. which is just like, you know, headaches at three in the morning. Yeah, right, right. It's really good. What's your kind of, if you were addressing the jury, what's your kind of closing statement on Prince of the City? I would say it's a must-see for anyone who's interested in that kind of... Objection, Your Honour. <laughs> anyone who's interested... <laughs> overruled. Um, anyone who's interested in that, you know, that specific 70s New York filmmaking... Yeah, I mean, it's it's great to see the city like that, isn't it? I, yeah. you know, I don't know if you've been to New York in the last 10 years, but it is like... A, it's like London's become, is it? It's what Flashy, London's trying uh, to be now, yeah. Tourist attraction and, you know, there's plenty of money and people flying in to look at it. Yeah, it's, um, it's you know, it is a continuation. It's probably one of the last sort of last gasp films from, from that era, trying to portray that era and, and, and of that era. It's a li you know, it was out of time when it was released, 1981. There was no market for it. Never really reached a major audience. Um, it's well-liked. But I think it's it's just too dark and too long, uh, too out of time. Um, and I think when you talk about movies from that period, you know, you are drawn to like the Pacinos and the De Niro's, those kind of central performances that are, are electric. Yeah, and they're in great films as well. I think if this had still had De Niro in the centre, it it would be up there with Once Upon a Time in America yeah, yeah. as one of those, you know, yeah, yeah. well remembered movies. Uh, sadly it doesn't but it's, it has a lot of strength otherwise I think uh, Travolta was up for the lead at one point for this? yeah after I think De Palma wanted to after Blowout wanted to make this with Travolta and then switch to that's an interesting film to imagine yeah I can imagine he's, he'd be able to do it as well he's because he's got he's obviously he's got the swagger in Saturday Night Fever and he's got the dead-eyed absolute you know emptiness at the end of blowout yeah, yeah he could probably do the two without you know chewing the scenery as much as yeah might have just been that different career path mm. i guess i think it's what prince of the city is one of those films that i'm glad i watched it i don't think i'll be revisiting it i for me i know i'll come back to it um would I, you would you fast forward through some of it no I'd like to watch it all. Um, it's one of those films. How can I put it? It's I like I like those films that sometimes don't get out of second gear. <laughs> I like those films that aren't you know perfect, and I, I find masterpieces or extremely good films a little bit overbearing sometimes. Sure. I do like in the same way that perhaps you would watch television. You know, I do like to have a film like this that you can come back to and appreciate some of the subtle things without being bowled over completely. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is why you know I'd nef never recommend it as one of the greatest films of anything ever. But I, I do like to have these, you know, something like this that you can come back to and and just kind of luxuriate in. in have it you ever seen bit. it in the cinema? No. I wonder if that's a different. Yeah, I don't know if I would want to either. Well, for me, it would be about you know getting those frames, those panels up really big, mm. so you could examine, you know, the background and the space. Yeah. Yeah, apparently there's only one 35mm print or something, isn't there? Which is in the Columbia University archives. Oh, my God. And the rest are, are gone. Well, that'll change soon. At some point, it'll get digitised mm. in 4K, and then 
it's, it'll be a lot easier to to schedule it for, for festivals and stuff. Mm, true. That's what and that's one of the things I've found recently is that a lot of films that you wouldn't have thought you'd ever get to see on a big screen because they've made a 4K master, you can just yeah, yeah, downscale a 2K digital print and you know at request. Mm -hmm. I went to see an, an Alien double bill at the Prince Charles and they're advertising it as the director's cut of Aliens, mm -hmm. which you know if there were ever prints made of that, it, it would have been back in 1992 or something. Um, but it was it was a a fresh new DCP. It was mm -hmm. a you know a mint mint print, oh, yeah, digital okay. print, um, and I guess it's a lot easier to do that now. So, at some point, when everything starts getting archived at 4K, um, you might get to see it somewhere. Yeah, I guess the Lumen season mm. BFI is probably got one scheduled in the next yeah. few years. Lumet centenary or something. Well, how about you? What what would you? How would you describe it if you were describing it to somebody? Um, I think I'd I'd probably pitch it as like a time capsule first. You know, when people talk about New York City now, it, you know, you should have seen it in the nineteen seventies. Mm. It was a fucking shithole, and it, it definitely, you know, you look at the city then and you you feel the crumbling infrastructure and the corrupt top to toe corruption. You can definitely see it all. Uh, so yeah, I think it like it's it's a. Uh, fascinating time capsule for that period in New York's history um, you know I think New York's one of those cities you kind of fall in love with through the cinema yeah and it's definitely part of it the puzzle of uh, of New York so I definitely if somebody was asking I'd say like you have to watch it for that and I think I'd probably spoil it a bit and talk about Lumet's technique look for him changing his technique with each chapter with each act mm. And I'd probably flag out with a warning about the central performance not being one of those electric 70s performances that you're used to. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's... I'm glad I saw it. Mm. It's You could call it, you'd call it a three-star movie, really, wouldn't you? You know, the strengths. Yeah, yeah, that's it. It's a, three, it's a solid three-star movie. Um, and if you like that sort of thing, then that probably bumps it up to four stars. You know, if you like Lumet, it's definitely a four star. If you like New York in the 70s. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it might work as part of a, a procedural season, you know, looking at uh, the workings of the American justice system. Yeah, you could do that. You, you could, it's a true story. Yeah, if you were doing, if you were celebrating The Wire or something, or or cop tv you could have this as a precursor to yeah i think i mean that's pretty valid i think if you're a fan of the wire this is a good one to look at this is like the father of the wire or the mm. grandfather maybe of the wire you know a mild recommendation i hate to, yeah. i hate to kind of like no, it sounds but that makes it sound shit it's actually like it's it is a good film it's just hobbled it's a good film but not a masterpiece that's good See it's it, if if you want <laughs> see it if you want there you go sold